welcome to the London Property Alliance's podcast series. I'm Bhakti Dipala, Head of Planning Delivery at City of London Corporation and a member of the City Property Association's Next Gen Committee. This podcast complements the publication of a new guidebook focused on making London's property sector more accessible for people with disabilities. The guide is part of a series developed by the City and Westminster Property Association Next Gen Groups with support from Next Gen Champions GT. One in five people living in the UK has a disability that affects their day-to-day life. With a hand in the creation and shaping of places in which people work, play and live, the property sector has a responsibility to deliver inclusive, accessible spaces that consider the needs of people with all disabilities. Understanding the varied forms that disabilities can take is crucial for ensuring that cent- that the central London property sector can support accessibility in the physical built environment. So in this episode, I'll be speaking with guests about the key lessons, challenges and actions that property companies and individuals should consider in order to improve disability inclusivity. We'll be talking about examples of simple design features, technologies and initiatives that can improve the accessibility of the built environment. Um, And it's not just about the physical built environment, it's also supporting inclusive workforces and changing the narrative around employing staff with more disabilities. So, Without further ado, let's introduce our speakers today. We're joined by Mike Adams, who's the CEO for Purple, and Westminster Property Association Next Gen Committee member, Claire Heifer-Davis from the Crown Estate. So I'm Mike and I'm Chief Exec of Purple. We are an organisation that is changing the disability conversation and the built environment is so important in how we do that but what we're trying to do is show that disability is both a commercial and social opportunity and therefore as we redefine what we mean by accessibility the more that we can involve everyone in creating kind of inclusive environments so delighted to be with you this afternoon. Yes. Hi, everyone. My name is Claire Heifer Davis. I'm a development manager in public realm at the Crown Estate. And for those who don't know, the Crown own land holdings throughout the UK. And my work is focused on our London portfolio, which spans Regent Street and St. James. Um, and my role is to deliver improvements to the public spaces between our buildings to make them more enjoyable and accessible for everyone. I also sit on the Westminster Property Association's Next Gen Committee um, and have collaborated on the guidebook. It's a pleasure to be here today and I'm delighted to meet you, Mike and Bakhti. And this is a really important conversation for the property industry. So thanks for having me. Thank you, Claire. Um, so, so let's get into this conversation. So something for you, Mike. Changing the conversation around disability is a key goal of the organisation you lead, Purple. Uh, So can you explain to our listeners what needs to change in the way people think and talk about disability? What are some of the typical barriers to effective open conversations and how can businesses overcome these barriers? Wow, what a big question to start with. Um, Two things, really. So traditionally, disability has been seen as an issue of charity, vulnerable people 
welfare and the responsibility of government. And what we're trying to do is move that dial and get disability seen as as value, as contribution, as community and as opportunity. And part of doing that is changing the perception. And what has been really great over the last few decades is the international sign for disability, the wheelchair, is so well known and it's raised the profile of disability significantly. But only 8% of disabled people are wheelchair users. And so, you know, we know that 80% of disabled people have hidden invisible disabilities. And so what we need to do is reorientate people when they think disability and including people with mental health on the neurodiverse spectrum, people with long-term health conditions, people with dyslexia, people with cancer or fully recovered from cancer. Um, We're actually talking in the UK, 22% of the population and disability is the largest minority group in the world so when we talk about this the built environment and when we talk about accessibility we have to think much broader than uh, lifts and and ramps and i think you've done that wonderfully well in the guide that you have produced and i recommend it to everyone who is listening today Great, thank you. Absolutely, you're entirely right. It's 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 you know distinguishing. It's not just about the disabilities you can see, but it's about those hidden disabilities. And I think that conversation is starting to become a bit more alive, where people are more willing to talk about things like this. And I think, I think that 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 change hopefully will 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 continue. Another thing I'd like to ask Claire is. Um, the property sector has a responsibility to design, build and maintain accessible spaces um, that work for everybody. Um, can you give us an example of a space in London that you feel has exemplary inclusive design? What makes this space or building special? Um, what do you like about it most? Yes, of course. And um, it's important to note here that I can't comment from the perspective of someone with accessibility needs. Um, but as a development manager, um, his role is to deliver improvements to public space. I feel a great sense of responsibility to make sure that those improvements are inclusive to everyone, regardless of levels of ability. And um So last year, I learned a lot from collaborating with specialists at uh, Access Able, and we worked together on the Regent Street Public Realm Scheme. And my work with Access Able highlighted to me that someone with a hidden disability, such as autism, may need a calming space to take time out away from busy streets to avoid sensory overload. I learned a huge amount from um, partnering with them about this this sort of hidden uh, area of, of disability. And so just thinking about that, I think the placing public art and greening in a quiet, accessible public space has a huge role to play in creating spaces to take time out. Um, from the, the hustle and bustle of central London. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just sort of, um, recently I've been working on, um, you know, the, at the City of London with established wind guidelines, thermal comfort guidelines. A lot of that is around how 
the space between buildings feel and how people use those and that the reason sort of part of the, the dialogue behind the wind guidelines is making sure spaces are you know safe for people with mobility impairments or younger people or etc and Mike same question for you um do, do you have an example of a space that you feel is exemplary in terms of inclusive design yeah I think I, I can say in terms of inclusive design over the last few years it has skyrocketed and um it's really good and uh I think what's great is that it is difficult just to pinpoint one or two places that are really good because everything is becoming more accessible. So that's 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 really good. And I would say to you, the ones that are the best are the ones that do it really subtly um, and you don't actually even know it's an inclusive design because there's not signs everywhere telling you it is. It just happens. And I think... For me, I just my trips into London have been limited over the last few months for other reasons. But um, I was on South Bank uh, the other week, and I, I, I think that's a, a really good, accessible place. I went to the London Aquarium, and I didn't ever have to ask any questions. It was just all there, and it was really subtle in the way it was done. And with a nod, by the way, to both physical access in terms of lifts and in terms of steps, et cetera, et cetera, but also uh, to the point where accessible toilets had signage on it that said not all disabilities are visible. And it's those subtle things that for disabled people provide real strength and hope that actually we can go places and we don't have to ask the questions. So um, it is getting better. That doesn't mean we can get complacent, but it is. No, you're absolutely right. I think you're seeing that more and more. So, Claire, one of the challenges in creating better, more inclusive spaces is the lack of disability awareness in our sector, uh, which I think we touched on um, just earlier on. How can organisations build up better understandings of the wide range of disabilities uh, that their users and colleagues might have? And I know you worked, as you mentioned, in the recent revamp of Regent Street, but how, di how did you access knowledge and expertise? Yes, um, so in relation to the first part of your question, I think something that is really um, sort of stands out to me is that design teams are not always representative of the community that they are designing spaces or places for. There's a danger that things are not allowed for in the design that would make a place accessible to everyone. So to me, it's really important to involve accessibility experts from the outset to play a crucial role on the design team as a critical friend to the architect, landscape architect, highways designer in, in public spaces and we did exactly that with Access Able who I mentioned earlier accessibility specialist who were appointed on our Regent Street Public Realm project. Uh, for those who, who don't know the project uh, last year we reduced the number of traffic lanes on Regent Street from four to two and that allowed us to widen out the pavements and introduce trees and greening for the first time. 
What Accessable did was they helped us to build in accessibility features. They sat at the design table from the outset and they really collaborated with the team to make sure that we allowed enough space within the pavements for people to move through, um, taking into account a, a range of different uh, disabilities and accessibility needs. We also introduced seats on Regent Street for the first time. And rather than that just being a sort of token gesture, we actually made sure that uh, we incorporated armrests, backrests and other design features so that people were able to lift themselves in and out of the seat where where needed. Um, And then just thinking about those who might be visually impaired, we introduced a number of planters in, in the street and we wanted to make sure that those with visual impairments would be able to spot them. So we introduced a lighter coloured lip around the top of the planter, which st- would stand out against the darker colour of the, the, the main body of the planter. Those subtle features, uh, which you know may not be obvious, um, are making a big difference to the project. We had a number of uh, ambassadors come and uh, experience the street and trial it and gave us some feedback um, and, and they they had different uh, disabilities and we were able to learn from them and we can apply those learnings to future projects. Yeah absolutely and I, I think I take your point I think the whole thing about using people to trial the spaces that you've created and actually getting real feedback because actually think about it that doesn't happen very often is there is there a mechanism for people to give feedback to say right this works well this doesn't mm-hmm. and actually that's so valuable in applying that to future lessons and we need to share that with each other in, in the property sector um how can we do things better and just just as you spoke about sort of that region street project here at the city of london and we've recently i'm not sure if you've heard of it but we've recently um launched this City of London Accessibility Toolkit, um, which enables street designers to easily identify how street features uh, and the impacts of different needs um, of disabled people. So the tool features recognise, you know, you could improve accessibility for one group, but then actually decrease accessibility for another group. So it's it's quite a clever tool. It identifies trade-offs to ensure that nobody's included from from the streets and it provides a basis of engagement and discussion to maximise benefits for all. So um, hopefully we can sort of, you know, people can use these kind of tools and we can sort of make them more widespread to to engage people to think about these kind of things. Great. So, well, yes, I think um, the opportunity to share learnings between London boroughs is, is also um, you know, a key, key answer to your question too. So yeah, I'd love to take a closer look at that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, Mike, the financial incentive for creating inclusive spaces is often overlooked by businesses. Can you explain to us the concept of the Purple Pound and the Purple Tuesday initiatives and what benefits might businesses expect to see when they tap into the diversity market? No, absolutely. So the Purple Pound is the consumer spending power of families where there is at least one disabled person in that family. So in effect, it is the disposable income of that family. And that equates to £274 billion a year, which is rising at 14% per annum as well. And if I just take an example of a tourist spot in the City of London, for example, If it was not accessible, 
then not only would that individual not go, but probably the whole family would not go. And in this world of social media, they probably would tell everyone as well. Um, And we've seen it, by the way, with tourism spots where access has been poor or non-existent and suddenly it gets around that actually they're not supporting all their customers. So and uh, it's really interesting because the number is huge, yet less than 10% of businesses have any kind of strategy to access that market. So it becomes a real huge opportunity, both commercially, but also because, and I do think, I was going to say post-COVID, and I don't mean that, but in where we currently are with COVID, I think there is much more significance now placed on organisations showing social impact, both for their staff, for their customers, and increasingly, by the way, their investors as well. And so this becomes a really important issue. Um, And I spoke at a property conference face-to-face about a year ago, and it was really interesting because they they had the technology there to do polls in the room. And there was, so I can tell you there was 305 people in the room. And I asked the question, given the broader definition of disability that I just said on this podcast, how many of you in this room, so property people, either have a relative who has a disability or someone in your close network who has a disability. And the the research evidence five years ago said 50%. The unscientific evidence on that day was 92%. So when we think of the property sector and everyone who works in it, actually the ripple effects is enormous because if you don't get this right, your auntie, your grandma, your niece, your nephew, your son or your daughter might not be able to go places purely and simply because they had a disability. And clearly in 2022, that cannot be right for anyone. And and Purple Tuesday is an initiative that is supporting organisations and businesses to improve their disabled customer experience. And so we are helping them with solutions to have a better relationship with existing disabled people, potential disabled customers and their families. Um, And all we're asking is that the the organisations make one commitment to change that they haven't previously done. And I have to say the Crown Estate have been absolutely brilliant partners over the years. And they will tell you that it is really straightforward. It's It really engages staff and they go, well, hang on a minute, we can do more than one thing. We can do this, we can do that. And suddenly it snowballs. Um, and suddenly you're taking staff on that journey as well, who will also have relatives or friends who have a disability. So Purple Tuesday um, has become... Uh, an international brand now, and we will be celebrating Purple Tuesday at Piccadilly Lights on the 1st of November, but we'll equally be celebrating it in the United Arab Emirates, at the Burj Khalif in Dubai, in the US, in Malaysia and Pakistan as well, because actually accessibility and disability are hugely 
important issues for the property sector and for everyone else as well. Absolutely. Um, Mike, you make an interesting point, you know, when you went to that conference and you asked people how many people know somebody who's affected by disability, you know, know somebody who's affected by disability. And actually, it's when you frame a, frame something which affects somebody, they set, suddenly become alive of that issue. Um, and and actually, what you spoke about in terms of that sort of social impact, this is one thing that I'm finding across the property sector is it's it's becoming more known. Making one small difference um, to make spaces more inclusive just gives a huge social impact to businesses commercially as well. So um, that's a really, really good point. So now, now moving sort of to, to workforce and inclusive talent, how can organisations um, attract more inclusive talent? Um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll put this out to both of you. Um, how can they retain this talent? How can you make sure that workplaces can support people with disabilities? I'm, I'm happy to start. Um, great, great. Go ahead. The, the, the point, the, the big point I would make is that 80% of disabled people have a hidden impairment. So in a work environment, there will be people working in the property sector, for example, who have a in uh, hidden disability who have chosen not to disclose for a variety of reasons. And uh, about a year ago, we worked with a big corporate who's based in London, and we've been working with the organisation for a few months. And the chief executive did one of these virtual, um, thank goodness it's Friday, where they stand up, talk about an issue for 15 minutes and then take questions. Um, and, and he did it on disability and why this organisation was committed to disability, in, including mental health, by the way. And, um, and it was really interesting. And, and then he said, look, you know, uh, any questions? And everyone's been in this environment before where no one comes off mute or, or someone might put a question in the chat box or nothing. And this person came off mute and said, I, I, I never thought I would ever see the day i've been in this organization 15 years and what the chief executive has just said has made me decide today's the day i'm going to tell everyone i've had a mental health issue and i've had it for 15 years but i feel i'm able to tell everyone and you can hear the the, the drawing of breath um and and then someone else came off mute and said well if such and such is telling you that they've got a, a hidden disability i'm going to tell you i have as well and I've got dyslexia and I go home every night and I work an hour and a half extra every night in order, because that's my coping strategy um, to enable me not to tell anyone that I've got dyslexia. Ten minutes later, that chief exec had nine more disabled people in his organisation than he knew he did. And actually, how did he do it? Well, he did it by making sure that within the, in the environment of the workplace, senior management to frontline staff talked about the issue. Now, in, in, a, in a COVID lockdown world, a lot of that issue has been mental health, by the way, and neurodiversity. But actually, it has opened up conversations to the point where people think it is safe and right um, to, to disclose impairment. So I always say to people, if you're looking to improve the workplace environment for disabled people start 
And it's very easy by talking about it. And suddenly you will get people in your organisation, one, who are starting to disclose, and two, will tell you why they hadn't disclosed previously. Um, and they then become, they become your marketeers. And it's really interesting. The organisation that I'm talking about, six months later, they recruited a director of marketing. And I knew the individual. And I spoke to her and said, why have you joined such and such company? She said, because I absolutely believe in diversity and inclusion. And it's a culture. And they clearly are showing it. And I wanted to go and work for them. So they were attracting talent into the organisation on a platform of talking about inclusion and diversity. And I think that's a really, really good place to start. And then I think, you know, you can work out the wider built environment. And again, it is about lifts and ramps and accessible toilets and getting it right. And you only have to go back to COP26 in Glasgow last November where the Israeli minister who was a wheelchair user couldn't get in the building to deliver a speech because there was no ramp or, um, to get up the step. So it still is critically important. But there's so many other things you could do. Better signage, uh, acoustics are really important. Uh, someone talked earlier about uh, quiet spaces within buildings for people on, on the spectrum. So we have to rethink, um, and, and for people with mental health, you know, the kind of unclutter things helps enormously. Uh, and by the way, the changes that you make for disabled colleagues, employees, work for a whole variety of different employees as well. So it's not a cost just to, you know, the 10 people, the 12 people. It says a lot about the culture and the environment. So that's where I would start. You gain momentum from that. You take all your staff on the journey and suddenly you come up with creative, innovative solutions, including, by the way, in, the, in a world of hybrid working, the online world opens up huge opportunities to access a talent bank, which happens to be people who happen to have a disability. Absolutely. So key um, in, in helping sort of retain that and having open conversations about that. Moving on to sort of talking about um, accessible physical spaces and maintaining these spaces. But what about online spaces how can the digital sphere be made more inclusive and what information about physical spaces should be made available to help people plan their visits to spaces across London and Mike I'm wondering whether whether there's anything you can sort of share on that yeah no absolutely and I and I think I spend 80% of my time talking about two broad issues one is mental health and the other one is online accessibility. Um, and, you know, throughout um, COVID and lockdowns shone a very bright light on how inaccessible the online world, the digital world still is. And if we're really not careful, and I, I'm, I'm saying this to property people, if we're really not careful, you'll think you've cracked accessibility because you put lifts and ramps and everything in, and then your websites will be totally inaccessible and you create 
a new kind of barriers. And I, uh, I when I do conferences, I talk about the no mouse test. And, and, and I tell people to, when they go home that evening, log on to their company website and then unplug their mouse and see how far they can navigate with the mouse unplugged. But what's really interesting is they realise how inaccessible their own websites are and how very quickly, overnight and at no cost, accessibility on websites could be improved. And I will absolutely tell you, as a disabled person and disabled people, before you go to a venue or you go to a place, you will look it up online first. And if you cannot access that information, it is a real barometer of what you think that place will be and whether or not you even want to go there in the first place. You know, and in terms of online, there are things that can be done. For example, it's amazing in 2022 how many websites still don't have a sitemap, which is the biggest and best accessibility navigation tool you can have. Um, If you are blind and you use a screen reader, then these web pages that start off um, all in caps for the first line because in stylistically it looks good will go they won't care where they are they'll just come off and that that is a two seconds change the ability people like to uh navigate through colors you know that's the kind of thing but actually if you're colorblind and three million people in this country are colorblind then actually unless there are words uh, that go alongside those colors you could get absolutely lost And again, it's not saying don't have these features, but alongside these features have words. So if you're going to have visuals and you're going to have pictures, absolutely great. Tells a a thousand words to some people, but if you're blind, it says absolutely nothing. So all tap them to to have a description of what the picture is showing. Um, So this is incredibly important to property in terms of disability and accessibility. It's it's a really, really, uh, you know, interesting and valid point you make, because actually the absence of online inclusivity makes a physical environment completely inaccessible for so many people. One of the last things I wanted to touch on was um, the, the new guidebook does suggest ways to make the built environment more accessible for people with physical disabilities and for those with non, non-visible non disabilities as well. Can you provide a couple of examples of um, how non-visible disabilities can be supported in, in physical environments and the workplace? And I open this to both Mike and Claire. I was just going to touch on another element. I obviously mentioned earlier about autism uh, being a hidden disability and creating moments of calm in public spaces to take time out. There are other, you know, numerous hidden disabilities where access to a toilet is key to be being able to get out and about. And so in the West End, there are currently very limited options and that excludes a number of people, not just those with uh, disabilities and access needs, but also elderly people, those who are pregnant, have young children, uh, all of whom will need access to a bathroom on a day out. So uh, again, as Mike was saying earlier, putting in measures to help People with disabilities can help uh, the community as a whole. 
And so at the Crown Estate, we are determined to address this within our public spaces. Uh, we have plans for a fully accessible changing places toilet in the public realm in our emerging proposals at Prince's Street. And we would love to um, deliver that there. I think that it would um, have a huge impact on a number of people uh, wanting to access uh, the West End. Um, so my, you know, my kind of handy hints or my tips are slightly different because um, they will be one online accessibility um, and it's to the point we made earlier that if you don't get that right then people won't come to your built environment that might be accessible so I think that's really important and then within your built environment your people your frontline staff your backline staff and I always get asked you know what is the one bit of advice you might be able to give someone listening to this podcast and I always say I, I learned something about four months ago when talking to people who are on the neurodiverse spectrum and, and and that was when you ask a question count to six in your head to allow the person to process the question that you have asked them and to then uh, respond accordingly and we have this terrible habit of not liking silences. So what we tend to do is jump in and try to answer for them. Um, and 99% of the time you get it wrong. And I know so many people with stammers who spend their life having to correct what people think they should be saying. Um, so again, it's really important that to make fully accessible kind of the property it is about the built environment and the changes that need to be made. It is about the online environment and it is about equipping people within those environments to understand what we're talking about in terms of disability and to implement good practice so they feel confident as well. And I can tell you, it's all about context. And I've been to so many places where accessibility is not 100%, but actually I've thoroughly enjoyed the venue or the place because the people and other things have made it so we shouldn't get caught up just on the physical environment but if we get the other two bits right as well it goes a long way into really being accessible and inclusive absolutely um so i think maybe i'm going to draw this to a close this has been um a really really inspiring and you know eye-opening podcast for all our listeners um, and what we can do there are lots of things that we can do um, to help make our um, environment around us not just the physical but also the online more accessible you know we talked that there's there's a broader definition of disability it's not always visible but it can be hidden needing to learn lessons from when we've designed spaces how can people use these spaces how have people used these spaces what successes are but actually, where can we make improvements and apply that to the next project we do? Mike spoke about the Purple Pound and the Purple Initiative and the commercial business opportunity there is in making spaces and places more accessible um, and the social impact it gives to businesses to be more inclusive uh, for people with disabilities. You know, making workforces, we spoke about organisations, how we can attract and retain staff. And there's great tools in this guidebook which can help enable this. Um, and changing the culture and how we speak about this is, is really important. 
So we hope that this guidebook will inspire you to inform Westminster Property Association and City Property Association members, as well as the, the wider property industry. Together, we can make a profession more inclusive, diverse and dynamic. So I just want to thank Mike and Claire um, for your time today. Um, and for the great discussion that we've engaged in and just that the London Property Alliance will be continuing with its diversity, equality and inclusion work stream and will be publishing a further two guidebooks on social mobility and faith over the coming months. So thank you both for your time um, and we hope you've all enjoyed that.